Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Jules Kim, owner and designer of Bejewels Jewelry, and Vicki Toback, author of Ice Cold, a hip-hop jewelry history. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. How you doing, Rob? I'm good. Weren't, weren't you, you were just here, correct? I was just there. It was a week ago now. it's uh, I was there for the Dubai Horology Forum, which is a watch conference put on by the organizers of Dubai Watch Week, clearly a whole crew from Dubai, but they put on a really good educational event down in the meatpacking district. And it was really interesting. I came in and I brought my mom with me and took it as an opportunity to remind my mom why New York is such a cool city. She hadn't been since I lived there full time about 15 years ago. And it was just, you know, September is my favorite time to be in New York. It's such a lovely, very nice, yes, lovely weather. And I'm off to Switzerland tomorrow. I don't know if I mentioned that. I feel like I've been to Switzerland. I was just there and now I'm going back and I'm a little uh, turned around because by the time people listen to this, I'll definitely be back. It's the shortest trip ever. I think I'm going to be there for um, two nights. What do you see? there? I'm going to uh, with Gerard Perigo, which is a watchmaker, and I'm going to see their factory and they have partnered with Aston Martin. So apparently we're having a driving experience somewhere in the um, Swiss like subalpine mountains, the Jura, where all the watchmakers are. So yeah, I guess I'll be driving an Aston Martin through the mountains. That sounds cool. Hey, fancy. And did your mom go to any of the sessions or no? She came to the cocktail party and she oh. was so great. You know, it was super loud, super crowded, down in meatpacking. I mean, it's so sceny down there. But she totally rolled with it. She was great. And I hope to be back for New York City Jewelry Week. Fingers crossed. So hopefully I'll catch up with all of you and maybe even one of our two guests today who does spend quite a bit of time together. Um, I guess let me introduce them since it is a two for today. Um, We've got a really cool show and it's a little different. I don't think we've ever had a show where we've talked to anybody about hip hop and jewelry. But today we've got... I think the expert really she's the author of ice cold a hip-hop jewelry history that's just been published as of i guess october 1st by tashin her name is vicky toback and i'll just share the the second guest who is featured in the book a wonderful jeweler that i had the pleasure of meeting in las vegas earlier this year jules kim the designer behind bejewels and we'll we'll get to some of her other initiatives in the jewelry industry because she's been doing a lot with young emerging BIPOC talents. We'll touch base on that, but both of them do have some history together and we'll get to that. It's so great to have you, Vicky and Jules. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Good to be here. So Vicky, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you kind of came to write this book and uh, what in particular interests you about this subject? Yes. And then I want to hear about how I can be driving an Aston Martin through the <laughs> horology. <laughs> I'm like, we'll have to we'll have to circle back to that. But yes, just a quick background on on me. I've been a longtime writer and journalist and curator. Ice Cold is my second book, but also you know, my first book was focused on hip hop. I came to this country as a young immigrant kid and grew up in Detroit really rooted in, uh, you know, a city that was very much founded on music, culture, and fell in love, you know, with hip hop at a really early age, and then had the pleasure of moving to New York and really being part of it at a time, at a really special time when it was very, 
you know, immersive in the early 90s, immersive time, which included club culture, you know, the starting of a lot of entrepreneurship around hip hop. I started out working for a record label back when I was still, you know, just 19 years old. And then, you know, slowly over time started writing about the culture and all of its different facets. And so Ice Cold is really just kind of this long through line of, you know, this music culture that I've been part of and written about for many, many years. And, you know, it tells sort of a different angle to the culture that I think really needed to be told. When did you start researching Ice Cold? Like, was that, when did you formally, I guess, begin the book? Look, informally, since my mom bought me a Nefertiti pendant when I was living in Detroit, <laughs> informally, in, in the 1980s. Right. But formally, um, I started the book right around the beginning of the pandemic, really. And it was a real shame because I couldn't really go visit the Diamond District or interview a lot of the jewelers in person, you know, when I was really formally starting the research process for the book. But, you know, learning about jewelry culture is something that has just always been part of the fabric if like if you cover hip hop or if you're part of, you know, this downtown club culture, you know what, you know, whether you see it around people that were rappers and street hustlers that were just around walking down Canal Street or the Diamond District or looking at just the people and what they wore on their bodies. So it's it's just something that one of these has been like downloaded into my mind for a long time. Mm-hmm. But you know, more formally, when I started, you know, writing about a book, book of it started sort of coming together beginning of the pandemic. And you got a lot of uh, big musicians to contribute to this book. Were they all excited about the idea? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Slick Rick wrote the foreword to the book. He is the don of hip hop jewelry. He still has all of his pieces. LL Cool J contributed an essay about a trip that he took to Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire in 1988, talking about the African link to, no pun intended, but link Mm -hmm. to um, hip hop jewelry. And then ASAP Ferg, who really kind of represents the contemporary hip hop world in in a way and was the first hip hop ambassador for Tiffany. He too contributed. So yeah, no, they were all really excited, just like with me. The jewelry has been a part of the culture for so long that everyone was like, of course, there has to be a book on it. Is there anything in particular that you think uh, any of these people said that really kind of resonated with you or kind of gave you a new insight? The most common thing is this very shared value of success and what we wear on our bodies being so representative of so much more, it more, you know, of identity, an assertion of making it or status or, you know, that tie to being royalty, you know, in a very philosophical sense. But everyone understood that jewelry is a communication. And that was just really like a common thread that I found with both you know, the folks that contributed essays and also the jewelers, you know, people like Jules too, who understand that it's more than just conspicuous consumption. This is a much deeper statement of who we are. Jules, do you want to give us a sense of, you know, your background and how you came to be a designer? And Sure. Well, I think, you know, to repeat, I guess the nightlife culture here in New York, um, specifically speaking about the Lower East Side is where my origin story comes from in terms of being a New Yorker or, or 
or identifying as such. You know, I, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and as soon as I had the chance to come to New York, I took it. And also my twin sister did the same, and we both were DJing and throwing parties and deeply fascinated with the fashion world. I came here as a fashion intern. <laughs> So there's a lot of like fashion, nightlife, fast paced, shared communal experience, this type of thing. It's like really invested in community building at the time. And how did you get into jewelry design? You know, I think jewelry is such a forever material. And in that time period, I was living a very ephemeral experience. So everything was fleeting. It was meet me here at this point. Oh, here we go. And here comes the night and here comes the day. And there I was, you know, assisting other artists um, and fashion designers. And so during the day, I would be consumed by that. And then in the evening, I would be, you know, carting milk crates filled with vinyl records all over the city until 5 a.m. kind of thing. So like in, in that type of experience, it didn't last forever. And there, when I had this idea about becoming a jewelry designer, basically I was like, I'm sort of over this briefness of everything. I really want to make something last forever. And I think like creating jewelry because of its intrinsic value, that comes already with this lasting impression. And in terms of fashion, it's like always changing, like it's uh, very capricious in a way. And I wanted to create jewelry that was just as infectious, but lasted forever. And when did you found your company? When did you actually start Bejewels? Officially was 2002. And officially, I would mean like on the dance floor or behind the DJ decks, literally. Like once I started selling, I'd be like totally covered in my jewelry. And then I would just sell it as the night progressed. Wow. Was it di- was it all diamonds precious and or what, did you start? Oh, out? you wish. <laughs> exactly. That would have been a, an ambitious goal, I guess. Was it silver? Oh, that would have been super fun. Um, it was it was silver, and I handmade everything. So over on Seventh and First Street, I had like a little makeshift workbench and got a little you know card table from the trash outside. And I was like, well, this will have to work for the moment. And I just made stuff and you know implemented the nameplate with graffiti because at the time it was like sex in the city is all the rage and not everyone's named Carrie. That can't be the case, you know. (laughs) Even on Canal Street, as Vicky mentioned, like Canal Street is like a thoroughfare of hip-hop jewelry and there's, you know, popular jewelers, like there's Charlie Goldcap on Canal Street. So there's all these like nameplates and all these door knockers and all these things and I'm clearly inspired by the street because it's where I, I live. I inhabit a certain vibe coming from the streets and so like pushing up those types of values into fine jewelry mm. has really articulated my pursuit or my point of view in, in total. And did you have any training or did you take any no. classes or you just kind of figured it out? You know, I went to university on a flute performance scholarship and in the middle of me tooting away, I figured out, hmm, maybe this organized classical training is not my bag. So I just sort of flitted around, studied fashion, studied French, moved to France. When I came back, I took a Jewelry 101 course. That was a brief entry into understanding just the basic, basic uh, tools of jewelry making, and it was enough to inspire me to dedicate myself to learning. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. 
And Vicky, for you, did you spend time in the Diamond District prior to starting this book? Or were you mostly along Canal, kind of shopping with those jewelers? Because that's a different scene from the Diamond District we know on 47th. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, it's very, very different. And I think most downtown kids will have spent more time on Canal Street and that area where, you know, you can get stuff obviously cheaper, but also just more playful, you know, all the like nameplates and little pendants. But the Diamond District was definitely, you know, this other level, this other world. What I found, you know, in, in doing the book is it's this kind of culture of hustle. And I say that with, in, a, in, a, in a good way that is also shared by pretty much all the Jews jewelers in the book, you know, pretty much all the jewelers in the book are either immigrants or children of immigrants. And I think there's something to be said for that with its relation to hip hop, because being an immigrant is being an entrepreneur. Being in hip hop is being an entrepreneur and and being a hustler. And I think those two worlds saw similar things to each other, you know, with Jules being, you know, the other guest here. I think you could also say that being part of downtown culture at a certain moment in time was also that, you know, it was a motley crew of seemingly different kinds of people, but with similar kind of dreams and aspirations and things that we held dear. The jewelers who catered to the scene, were they, did they go to these clubs too or? No, you know, it not yet. You know, it's not like today where you have you know, the Greg Yunas and the Ben Ballers and the like swaggy young jewelers who will are like just at home in the club as they are, you know, anywhere back then, like the jewelers, they kind of stayed put, right, Jules? Like, yeah, totally. you know, they're at the bench. They're in the factories. Yeah. yeah. Jacob, you know, Jacob, he was not coming out to the clubs. <laughs> like they, they were, yeah, they were not, they were just a different style of jeweler. Cause now it's kind of cool to be like a young jeweler and be a personality. You know, you it's can, true. But back then you were, it was very much still very old world. When you talk about Nels being the more like upscale version where the execs would show up. So was that where you saw the biggest jewels and the most kind of robust expression of hip hop culture and diamonds at once? Like, were you seeing these things? And do you remember being impressed? I mean, what was your sort of takeaway? You know, back then, so yes, like Diddy, Russell Simmons, um, you know, all the executives, but the people that you would see the most in the clubs, at least, that I found with the jewelry were the drug dealers, the hustlers, the people who could really wear those things in the street. Because look, 90s New York was not safe at all. It was a different time, you know, chain snatching and all of that was like ripe in the air. So I think you had to have a certain level of protection and respect to wear you know, the kind of jewelry that we think about now back then. So do you want to talk a little bit about why the hip hop community in particular got so interested in jewelry? Going all the way back to the 1980s, early hip hop before even, you know, there were really albums or anything. The young guys that would be the future superstars were really looking to the hustlers in the street who were wearing jewelry. And you started to see, you know, the first instance of jewelry being worn on an album was Curtis Blow's debut album. And those chains were just really, you know, really tiny, 
and, and layered and with just a few little pendants on them. There were, you know, kind of pendants that were popular, like the anchor pendant, Nefertiti pendant, you know, but it was still super mellow in the early days. And then as hip hop sort of stepped into its power in the 90s, once the labels started really forming, once more money started coming into the culture, that moment then quickly led to hip hop stepping into its power financially in the 90s. And that's when you started to see folks like you know Jay-Z and Diddy using platinum, using diamonds, really kind of like taking everything up a notch when you started to see label pendants, you know, the Rockefeller chain, the death row pendant, all that really started to change in the 90s. And also Jacob, you know, Jacob Arabo, Jacob the jeweler, as he's known, after he sort of took the torch from Tito, who was Tito Caicedo of Manny's jewelry, who was before him, everything just started getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, I could keep going sort of with the different things that happened that would change the style, you know, like Pharrell coming in and Gucci Mane, you know, and we haven't even talked about Grills Culture Jewels, which you could, you know, chime in here with. That's why, you know, doing the book, I was like, this is a real story with a beginning, middle, and, you know, no end yet, but continuation of all these milestones that have informed how it looks what kind of influence it has on the bigger world and the bigger jewelry world. And that's why I think it just is such a fascinating, you know, history. I love that conversation about what the influence it's had on the industry and just culture at large. But, you know, you think about the nameplate and clearly not originating with Carrie on Sex of the City and these other styles of chains that come in and out, but we're really in a moment now in, in the wider world of jewelry where beautiful diamond set, Cuban chains or, you know, curb links, these different kinds of chains that you do associate with hip hop are extremely popular mainstream. And so I wonder if there are any trends that you feel, you know, really we owe to the world of hip hop that now we don't even recognize as having originated there. Or in fact, maybe it's even older than that. Maybe it's origins in, in African traditions that found their way to hip hop that then found their way to a wider, more mainstream base. Like what other what other trends do you feel like are worth noting? I'm gonna let Jules answer that broader question, but I'm j- I just wanna kick it off with the point you made about it having ties to African styles and cultures. Cause that was something, you know, I found really interesting doing this book. There were like Fulani hoop earrings. I was like, oh my goodness, those look exactly like the Dornacker earrings of today. Ashanti rings, Tuareg rings, you know, all of these different styles that you could very clearly connect and make the the style connection. So that that I thought was really cool. And I tried to point it out, you know, wherever I could in, in the book. Yeah, and I guess to add to that, Vicky, I think there are some styles and jewelry culture that can be attributed to its foundation in Africa. And because, you know, hip hop is born from a Black America here in New York and how they can defy fate and how they can prove themselves and how the act of, you know, encouraging a jewelry spirit through what they say, how they act in the world, how they're rapping, how they're living their lives, like they can become as explicit 
or withheld as they prefer, you know? So I think something like the grill is coming from, you know, a need for dental attention, you know, it wasn't, (laughs) it was literally like using your resources in order to handle your teeth situation. And then you fast forward generations and hundreds of years to what it is now. And there's something beautiful about embellishing what you say and how it escapes your mouth. So in, in that realm, I feel like grills really have propelled a sense of self that goes beyond just an aesthetic. It's really going back to their foundation and sort of speaking forward into the future about it. And you made, right, uh, do you have a grill that's featured in the book? I think you do. Yes, I do. I did some work with Erica Badu, and we made this project called Badrul. In essence, you know, my photographer husband, yes, hubby, he's he's upgraded to boyfriend. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my Italian husband, when he returned from the Senegal uh, shoot, he was in Dakar, and he was documenting Senegalese wrestlers. And there are these beautiful, ornate rituals that are occurring pre-match, and there's this one portrait of a beautiful man wearing some floss. I would call it floss at this point, but it's a string that's been handwoven. And at the end of the handwoven string that comes from his mouth is a rock that's been wrapped in a sigil. And in that way, he's giving spirit to his match and hopefully he wins and secures his fame and his village. And for me, when I looked at that, I was like, that type of pride should be everywhere. We should know where everyone comes from. I think that, you know, this type of ritual that adjoins aesthetic and brings community together, that was such like a spiritual visual for me that I held on to it tenderly until I found the correct person to emote it. And with Erica Badu, she clearly knows exactly where I'm coming from, knows how to withhold and then how to let go. And in terms of idea and also spirituality. And so we made the Bad Rule, which is Badu plus drool. Wow. <laughs> so it's like rose gold falling out of her mouth. Wow. Does the exposure that uh, that these people give you, does that increase sales? No, it does not. You know, what it does is it helps circulate ideas into pop culture. I think there was a time where working with celebrities could leverage sales or at least incentivize sales. But in this time, and I also believe that, you know, the internet has really democratized IP and people take it upon themselves to be influenced immediately and liken themselves to ideas that they see in the broad spectrum of pop culture. So if I put it on Beyonce, example, 2008, I put nail rings, diamond studded, 24 karat gold nail rings on Beyonce for her Sweet Dreams video. And then ever since then, fast forward 2022, those nail rings are the most imitated and ubiquitous silhouette in my collection today. Do you find that the celebrities are very deliberate in what jewelry they choose? And, you know, you talked about the message. Are they very cognizant of that? I think some are. Some choose different value systems um, in terms of how quick they turn over. Let's just say Doja Cat, who I've worked with on the Billboard Music Awards. She was just in Paris and every night she had to look different, you know? So it's not like she's just performing once a month or anything like that, or she's going on tour and there's a set look. There are a certain amount of celebrities that have a lot of influence in fast turnover in their style style and fashion and working with them really helps leverage pop culture in that sense, but it doesn't really establish like a consistent method of sell through, if, mm. if you get my 
drift. Yes, understood. Sadly, we're coming up in our time, but I feel like there's so much more to ask each of you. Vicky, in terms of, I guess, just the experience and now that the book's out and making its way into the world, any favorite quotes or favorite parts that you feel like our listeners might want to jump to or at least make sure they note? Gosh, I mean, you know, everyone always brings up that biggie quote that you never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Mm. And I think when we think about where jewelry culture and hip hop started to where it is today. And we didn't even dive that deeply on how, you know, the mainstream jewelry world is now so influenced by it. I mean, that Tiffany hardware line, you can just kind of see it like oozing, you know, in, in, in kind of hip hop. You see how now everyone is dying to work with hip hop and have hip hop in the front rows of all the the shows and have them be ambassadors and all of that. And, you know, I just think back about those early days where that wasn't the case. I just think of the Biggie quote, you know, you never thought that hip hop would take it this far. You know what, Vicky, I, I just wanted to tell you that there have been some just amazing and fascinating moments that have resulted as a ripple of this book. And I wanted to share those with you and with everyone on this podcast that, you know, at the book signing at Dover Street Market a few weeks ago, there was, you know, so many people and so much love in the room. And we were like feverishly signing heartfelt thanks and showing gratitude in levels really it was so amazing one of my mentees was in line because she works at dover street and right standing next to her was another person who had driven from new orleans to come to the opening to have his book signed vicky wow yeah. And he, you know, he was a super fan and he was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm here. And, you know, I was just talking to Kay and she says that you're a mentor and da da da. And I, I really want to make grills like you and da da da. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. Oh my goodness. Like tears welling in my eyes. And I'm like, this is such a great moment. I, I love being able to share these stories and, you know, also like inspire hope for new jewelers who are coming into the scene, especially being born into the culture of hip hop. And then fast forward to a few weeks later, I'm in Dallas and he came to meet me in Dallas and to share time with me in Dallas. And now I'm going to help him be a grill jeweler. Uh, wow. Yeah. So Vicky, I just wanted to tell you that was such uh, an amazing experience that when I was in Dallas, the, the store called Urban Flower Grange Hall that I work with is, you know, a fine jewelry establishment. And, you know, here comes this cutie from New Orleans who met me in a heartbeat and was like, no, I just really want to dedicate myself to finding out more. And he found out so much more that he drove there. I love that. I love that. That is that is hip hop hustle at its core. Seriously, and check this. When he was here in New York, he went to a club after and somebody stole his damn book. Oh, oh, oh. no. All right, we'll have to, we'll have to get him a new one. That, that just pulled on my heartstrings, yeah. Yes, no, totally. So all of the, the signing and like all of this messaging, he, he goes, you know what though? I'm standing in front of you. I am so grateful that I had that book and it's okay if I don't have it now because now I can have this. And I was like, oh. Wow. I mean, obviously it speaks to just the community that and the culture and how vibrant and committed it is to, to jewelry and to showing this style and obviously to each other and, and 
for oh. you two, you two as sort of ambassadors and advocates and just members of the community. Thank you both. I wish uh, there's so much more we could say, but I, in some ways, that anecdote about just how inspiring Vicky's book has been to members of the community is almost the perfect way to end it. So if people want more information about your businesses, where should they, or your book and your company and where should they go? I mean, for me, it's pretty simple. I'm at Vicky Toback on Instagram and otherwise the book is available everywhere books are sold through the Tashin website. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much it for me. Yeah. And I guess from my side, Instagram also, you can see a, a great spread of my work at Bejewels, B-I-J-U-L-E-S. And then of course I have my website, it's Bejewels.me. So it's sort of um, making you part of your own destiny in jewelry. Um, so yeah, you can find me there. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone. So fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.